Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast, where today we're looking at the HCP LAN APM framework. We're not going to use that full title very often. This framework is important because it's a reference point for what Vermont has done so far and what we hope to do in the future around healthcare payment reform, and it lets us begin to broaden the conversation beyond our borders to look at the rest of the country. Here to talk about it is our guest, Ina Backus, Director of Healthcare Reform. So let's start with the first part of that name. HCP LAN. The Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network is a organization that's a public-private partnership, and it has a mission to accelerate healthcare system transition to alternative payment models. And now you have the second bit, APM, Alternative Payment Models, which is what we've been talking about all along. In this case, APM does not stand for all-payer model, which is the more common use of that acronym in Vermont although our APM in the all-payer sense is also an APM in the alternative payment sense. Moving on. The public-private partnership behind the learning network is led by the same public funder that's working with states like Vermont in implementing transitions. The Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network is receiving support from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. That is a center within the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that was created by the Affordable Care Act in 2010. The Innovation Center received funds to work towards innovative payment models and cost containment and quality improvement for Medicare. They also promote models that are seeking innovation across multiple payer types. There is a general shared goal in payment reform of moving towards value-based payments. The federal government encourages moving in that direction, and now the Learning Network has added further structure to that movement in the form of the HCP LAN framework that gives guideposts. The next bit is going to be reviewing the framework. So essentially, we're describing a chart over audio. That's the policy geek equivalent of trying to explain why a joke is funny. Bear with us. The chart will be linked in the show notes. I highly recommend looking at it. The framework describes different categories of payment for healthcare providers. In category one, it describes what is the predominant method of payment of healthcare providers in the United States and has been, which is fee-for-service reimbursement. Fee-for-service reimbursement has no link to quality or value. You'll be paid for the services that you deliver. And then in the second category of this framework, the framework describes fee-for-service that has a link to quality and value. And so that type of payment may mean foundational payments for infrastructure and operations on top of your fee-for-service reimbursement. Fee-for-service is still the method of payment that is providing for reimbursement, but layered on top of that are some additional payments and or incentives for higher quality, higher value care. Could include pay for reporting, mean you get paid a bit more if you report data or metrics. And it could also mean that you're paid for performance in this category, bonuses for high quality performance. In category three of the payment framework, these alternative payment models that are described in category three are also still built on fee-for-service architecture, but now these models of payment have moved to live in a world where there are shared savings opportunities or there are shared savings opportunities and risk opportunities, meaning in this category, providers could assume downside risk. 
this should be starting to sound familiar. Here's where our original ACO conversation with Kate Simmons will have come in, with the shared savings model, and then the risk quarters conversation with Michael Costa about adding downside risk to the upside-only model. Category four, it's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, perhaps. It's describing population-based payments. So no longer are the payments reliant on fee-for-service architecture. They're completely divorced now from fee-for-service. And these payments look like condition-specific population-based payments, meaning per-member-per-month payments or payments for specialty services such as oncology or mental health services. I'm going to interrupt here quickly because there's a distinction that will become important. As a system transitions through the different parts of this framework, it's not like you're jumping from one category and landing both feet in the next. You might have a fee-for-service payment architecture, and then within that, allocate per-member-per-month payments to deal with, for example, preventing behaviors like smoking or poor diet that lead to cancer, and evaluate that program using a set of measures based on the success of the prevention. That's an island of value-based payment in a fee-for-service ocean. You can connect all the islands and fill in between them to reach a value-based landscape across the state. Or you can choose a provider type or a certain population where you say, all right, instead of starting with a few defined health goals, everything you do is value-based, but only for that predefined set of providers or set population. Then you can start to add up providers and populations who have made the switch to get to a value-based landscape that way, or a combination, something in between. So Enid just gave an example of the first type of transition with value-based payments around particular health outcomes. She's about to give examples from the second approach. These payments could also mean in category four comprehensive population-based payments. Some people call these global budgets or full percent of premium payments. They could also mean in this category integrated finance and delivery systems meaning global budgets that are including the total cost of care and are providing for both the payer and the providers. So a fully integrated system is like a Kaiser system where the healthcare providers and the healthcare insurance are one in the same. That's in category four. And where is Vermont? Well, as we already mentioned, these categories can look more like gradations than distinct lines. And category four may be a pot of gold, but it's not exactly a silver bullet. Here in Vermont, our structure for changing healthcare payment incorporates three payer types, Medicaid, Medicare, and some of the commercial insurers. That's the all-payer part of APM. It also brings in different provider types. For example, both hospitals and primary care unaffiliated with hospitals. And not all combinations are in the same step in this land framework. So for example, Medicaid does category four type value-based payments for hospitals, but that's one payer type and one provider type. Commercial payers are more fully in category three, and Medicare is doing something else that involves value-based payments, then tracking claims to know what the fee-for-service payments would have been and reconciling at the end. And of course, all of that might have shifted by the time you're listening to this episode. The goal is to get everyone to the same place, but it's a work in progress. I think it's very important that there are different levels of readiness for comprehensive population-based payments versus shared savings and downside risk. I think the question is for providers to consider how much uniformity they want versus how much risk they're looking to take. And I think we can make accommodations for incremental risk taking 
where and not force everyone into complete population-based model if that's not where they're feeling comfortable. So there's certainly somewhat of a dance to be had in terms of provider readiness and payer alignment and how each payment model offered by each payer is or is not working uh, consistently with the others. As we talk about readiness, don't forget that while this conversation is focused on payment reform, we're not expecting to outline a new payment system then leave everyone to figure it out on their own. There's a whole category of work and practice transformation that you heard about some with our earlier SIM grant mini-episode and that you might have also heard about through programs like the Blueprint for Health. That's a topic for another day. For now, suffice it to say that there are many moving pieces, and that's why having a theoretical framework we can agree on is pretty darn useful. It lets us measure what we're doing, speak something like the same language to other states, and think collectively about where we're going. Speaking of where we're going, my conversation with Ina focused on where we are, and not speculation on other systems in that fourth category of payment, how they might work, or different ways we might end up in them. But that's fine, because when you want someone who will speculate about the unknowable future with full confidence, that's when it's time to bring in the consultants, which we'll do for a look into the world of global budgets on the next episode of the Policy in Plainer English podcast.